brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep Radio, on time, on target. Awesome show this episode. I'm really psyched for because we not only have uh, Marine Corps Major Fred Galvin back on, but my friend Matt Veerkan is back on with us. Before we jump into anything, this show is brought to you by Crate Club, a club for men by men of gear handpicked by special operations military veterans. Visit CrateClub.us for an exclusive promotion for our listeners of 20% off any gearbox of your choice. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep that promotion live. So go to CrateClub.us, use the coupon code SOFREP, S-O-F-R-E-P, of course, and get 20% off any gearbox. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SOFREP for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up now. With that, first interview is my friend Matt Vierkant, who I really met doing this show, U.S. Army veteran, served alongside Bo Bergdahl, and basically the reason we're having you on is you listen to the recent interview with Mike, Michael Ames. I know that uh, originally you just <laughs> said you, you wrote bullshit. And then I, I basically said, you know, give it a listen, which you did. And there were specific points that you wanted to pick apart. Um, so did Co- Cody Full, who served with you, who was a roommate of Bergdahl. And he gave me some specific things that he said did not happen the way that Michael um, reported on them. So uh, we'll get right into everything. And, and I just want to say, as someone who did the interview with Michael, you know, I, I definitely think the guy did his research. He seems like he did a good job going back into the history of everything. However, personally, this, this is just coming from me. As for stuff that actually happened while he was stationed and while he walked off base, I will definitely defer to you and Cody because you guys were at, actually there. I know that both of you guys don't have some agenda. You've just reported on what actually happened as you were there. So I'm looking forward to getting into this. Um, yeah, I, I guess where, you know, where do you want to get started? Because I know yesterday you listened to the interview in its entirety and kind of took some notes of, of what you, uh, you know, felt was inaccurate. Yeah, I, I did listen to the interview. I thought it was a good interview. I have no agenda against Michael Ames, his book. I have no agenda against Bergdahl. The whole point of this was never to pol- politicize anything. We just wanted the truth to come out, state the facts, and see where it falls from there. Um, you, you know, want to point out inconsistencies. Um, so this isn't like us trying to do a hit piece on Bergdahl or you know trying to trash him. We're trying to lay out all of the facts and see where they actually point to. Um, you know, and I just saw a lot of different inconsistencies. I actually did read about half of his book yesterday. Um, so I just kind of browsed through and, you know, I skipped the history lessons and all that stuff, but I went into, you know, what Bergdahl said and, um, how he described things. And one of the major things from the podcast that stood out is 
You know, he said before he went to Afghanistan, he was sleeping on a concrete floor or whatever. Well, no, he was sleeping on a mattress in the barracks the whole time. I mean, maybe he did that before he joined the Army. That's great. But, I mean, he wasn't doing that when he was back in Alaska. And, you know, just small inaccuracies like that. Um, You know, I think he's, you know, from interviews, books, I think he shows, you know, definite history history of embellishing the truth and or lying or trying to make himself look more romantic or as an action hero than what he actually is. Um, you know, I know through his statement and at the trial, he said that he didn't, he didn't realize that anybody would go looking from him. But then in his initial statement in 2014 in August, he told them he knew exactly what Dust Juan was, explained to them what Dust Juan was, why it was so important. So I don't know why at trial he said he had no idea someone would actually go look for him. It just There's a lot of different inaccuracies and things that he says that don't match up and don't line up. And a lot of times I, I understand that, you know, he's been diagnosed with a mental problem and all this stuff. But it's like Michael and some of these other people use that to be like, oh, nope, he just thought that he was doing this. They, like, use that as a crutch sometimes instead of, like, well, did he actually think that? You know, did he make that up and make him believe that that's an actual thing that happened or did that actually happen? And even the psychiatrist, um, you know, put when they evaluated him when he came back that we have to be careful because we need to make sure that he's recounting facts and not recounting memories or dreams or fiction. So that's where I get, where I have a hard time believing all the stuff that he's saying because he's been diagnosed with that. He's shown history, you know, when he was back in Idaho, he would tell all his friends different stories about how he would get cuts or whatever and romanticize different things. In letters um, in his journal that he wrote back home, he lied to his friends about stuff they were doing. And so it's hard for me to believe what he says at face value. That Bergdahl is an unreliable narrator at the end of the day. Yes. And I mean, just yesterday, I, you know, browsed through a lot of different statements questioning um, stuff in the book. You know, they write about stuff from his past. It seems like he does have a very long history of making up stories, embellishing stories, you know, has this, idea that he's going to be Jason Bourne someday or something like that. So it's hard for me to try to understand what actually happened, what he was actually thinking, what, you know, it's just, I don't feel like it's the full truth. And then when you go back and you look, you know, um, he said, you know, before he leaves, he writes on Facebook, actions may become odd, no red flags. I'm good. But plans have begun to form. No timeline timeline yet. I love you, Bo. And then she's like, oh, my God, what are you doing? He goes, you know, I plan better than that. Um, you know, talking about his plan or whatever, he writes, writes in a you know, cryptic message in email so it doesn't get, you know, popped up by the uh, government and, you know, CIA, NSA or whatever. And, uh, you know, then right before he leaves, he writes a message to his, you know, best friend. How far will a human go to find their complete freedom? For one's freedom, do they have the right to destroy the world to gain it? And, like, there's all these different cryptic messages. And, yeah, some person can interpret that as, well, he needs to morally do this 
fucking insane plan to run back to the base, even though we were going there, because somehow that's going to make somebody listen to him by doing a, an idiotic thing. But then in the same breath, he says that it would be completely idiotic to desert and walk to Pakistan or India, but he doesn't realize that it's still the same idiot idea to do what he did, but he thinks it's different. So like, I don't, just to try to understand the whole mindset and everything, it just, it's hard. Well, and that's why I've just been trying to look at the facts and statements and histories and everything to try to understand if that's what he was actually trying to do, or maybe he was trying to go out there and, you know, be Jason Bourne and find him and attack him or, you know, whatever. Maybe he was planning to walk out because he was sick of dealing with that unit, you know, and then his story about when he did walk off and get captured, he said he's walking for hours. He's probably, 11 kilometers away to the north at like eight o'clock in the morning or something. But then he gets picked up in Yaya Kel. That's five kilometers to the east, southeast. So it's in a completely different spot. Like there's so many things that just don't line up. I just think that there's a lot of things that are missing that we're probably never going to know. And I'm not saying that he walked off and his plan was, you know, to join the Taliban or whatever. No, I'm just looking at the facts and, I'm like, what was the actual plan? Was it to run to Sharana? And he's been planning this for a long time, but then when he goes to actually do it, like, it's he didn't do it how he actually planned, then it all falls apart, and then all of a sudden turns into a different plan. And it, I don't know, to me, it seems like he may have left off to go do something. I don't know why he would go back south to an area we had never really been before to look for IEDs when he could have looked for IEDs other places. But then again, he has, you know... Uh, mental disability and, you know, makes himself believe, you know, horrible ideas, I guess. So it's just hard to wade through everything and, you know, really understand what was going on. Matt, do you think that, you know, these contradictory and, I mean, frankly, nutty, you know, insane statements that Bergdahl made, I mean, the only consistency in any of it that I I can see from, from my point of view is that the consistency is that they would all be consistent with a, a schizoid personality disorder, which is, you know, what he was diagnosed with. Exactly. And that's why, like, some things are like, oh, nope, that's his disorder. But other things are like, nope, that's a fact because he told us that. You're like, well, how can you, you know, just say that about one thing and not about the other? Like, how can it not all be questioned? That's what I don't understand, especially when there's just even different things that change, you know, like the dust one thing. Oh, I didn't think people would look for me, but I explained to you when I got back exactly what it was and how big of an issue it was. And, you know, all these other things, it's like things just change on the fly with him about what actually is, you know, true. Well, some, some of the statements and preparation that he made, you know, obviously you know better than I do that the whole thing was premeditated and it was mm-hmm. just my, my impression from some of the questions he was like asking his squad leader and, and some of the things oh, yeah. he was doing mailing his stuff home. I mean, it gives you every indication that he knew what he was doing and he knew there was some consequence that this wasn't like a small thing that, that, that there was going to be fallout from this. Oh, definitely. And I don't, I just don't understand how, I don't know, it doesn't, I don't feel like they really tried to investigate it too hard. I mean, when they went to pre-trial, they immediately tried to throw out 
people were killed or wounded, and then they come back for trial, and then they have people testify when they were wounded. They didn't even really try to look into it. The army or whatever, like, oh, well, we found no evidence. We're just going to pass this by. You know, Hatch, the Navy SEAL got shot in the leg and his dog got killed. He's like, um, wait a second. Um, I got wounded. And it's like, it's just, there's a lot of weird things about this. Like, they're just trying to push it along and get out of the way and move on. And I get that, but I just feel like it wasn't handled the best. I know you don't want to, I mean, from what I take away, it sounds like you don't want to speculate too much on, on things, you know, you don't know for sure, which I respect. Um, but what, what do you think is being missed in this story? Um, in, in Michael Ames book and, and, you know, the, the information that he collected, it sounds like you're obviously not satisfied with the, the narrative that you feel that there are other, there's additional information. There's something that's being overlooked here. I mean, could you, would you be willing to put your thumb on that a little bit and, and share what you think is, is being swept under the rug? I think personally, I mean, they're not looking into, you know, what he actually, um, his reasoning for going, they're taking it. Okay. We're going to ask you the same questions. You come up with the same stories again and again, they're plausible. They match up, they match up with, you know, your mental disorder and everything, but it, it doesn't feel like they're like really diving in and trying to find, okay, where was he at at this time? Was he actually at this spot? And it's also hard to do that because yeah. there's nobody to really talk to. Yeah. So it's just, I, I don't know exactly what's missing. I, I don't believe that his story of why he left is the true story. I think there's something else to it. And he changed his story either right when he left or changed his plan or whatever. I don't believe that was his original intent just through the emails and the planning and everything like that. It just, to me, it doesn't make sense. And, and it, it sounds like one of the big things that you don't buy into that Ames is saying is that people didn't die or get wounded in searching for Bergdahl. You believe they did. Oh, uh, I definitely uh, know that, you know, Hatch got wounded service member dog died. Did, has anyone even looked into if, you know, Afghanis had died looking for him. Nobody cares about that. I mean, was there Afghan police? Was there Afghan military? Did they even look into that? Because they hardly even looked into Americans that were wounded, you know, looking for him. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe there wasn't any Afghans that were killed, but I don't think anybody really looked into it. And I don't know if there were people on direct missions looking for Bergdahl that killed, but I do in my heart feel that he contributed to the situation which led to people being hurt and killed later on after he left, without a doubt. And if, if that's, uh, you know, everything you want to get to, I, I will also mention the stuff that Cody wrote just so to make sure that we cover everything. Yeah. Um, because he said, he, he wrote to me on uh, Instagram, on Stop Up Radio, um, he just said, as his former roommate, I look forward to Matt's rebuttal, especially about him not sleeping on a mattress, which you covered. Um, and then, he, you know, I, I said that Cody could come on and everything, and he's just kind of busy today, has other commitments. He was like, I appreciate the offer, though. Uh, and I said to him that we're not trying to push any narrative or agenda. We were happy to have everybody on from all sides. So what he wrote back, this was the biggest thing he wrote back, was, I know y'all aren't. I appreciate any form of media that allows two sides to tell their own. Just something's in his book about him sleeping on the floor? No. And having bottle caps thrown at him? Uh, uh, question mark, LOL, what? No. 
The book is well written, but I don't think it's objective. What is anymore? And then he writes, uh, in quotes, Bo was crazy and should have never been in the army, but he is a totally truthful, incredible witness. Here's what he says. That just doesn't pass the smell test with me, which you, you, you also pretty much said. Yeah, I, I definitely think, um, I mean, the book was pretty decent. I haven't, I'm going to go back through and read it cover to cover because you know, I didn't have time to do that, but I did read, I would say, about 50% of it. And I do think that you know the book was not objective. It was definitely for Bergdahl's side. There's a lot of things that he didn't put in the book of other letters that he wrote home unless I missed them. Um, you know, saying that we ran over a kid and killed a kid, which was a complete lie that he wrote to his friend or family or whatever. It was in his journal. You know, just other lies and different things. I felt like they could have gone more in depth to show, you know, the more strange things about Bo and like the lies about him and the lies that he would tell other people like that and show more. I don't know. To me, it just it felt like it was more geared toward, you know, showing, yeah, he messed up. He made a mistake. He's not a traitor, but I don't know. I just felt like it, it wasn't a two side book. It was mostly just Bergdahl's side. You know, one of the, one of the claims that apparently was made that had, that Bergdahl had made that it's upset him was that your guy's commander had kicked over a a tombstone. Uh, Was there, had you witnessed that or was there any truth to that? Well, and what he thinks was a tombstone isn't a tombstone. It was a pile of rocks that was by an old gravesite that we weren't even necessarily on, but next to. So, I mean, we weren't there to like try to desecrate graves or whatever. Um, Colonel Baker or whatever, he didn't go and kick rocks or whatever because he knew it was a headstone. He wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to disrespect a grave. He wasn't trying to do anything. I don't even know if it was a grave, the pile of rocks that you kick. You see rock piles stacked up all the time in random spots. So I think there's a lot of things like that that are twisted and taken out of context to make people or situations portrayed in a different light than what they actually were. There's a lot of twisting of things. It's, uh, you know, like that one book, uh, you know, Wilderness of Mirrors. It it feels like, you know... Bo is a is an unreliable narrator, and as you said yourself, it's like some of these some of these questions we're never going to get the answers to because the only person who can tell us is you know not necessarily tethered to reality. Exactly, and you know I don't know if he's on medication now, what they're doing to help him, treat him, or whatever. But you know I completely imagine that there's still always going to be questions unless he comes out and changes his tune later on. I mean, I've read a lot of different things. He's helping, uh, you know, some seer schools out in Washington state and doing some talks and, you know, hopefully something good does come out of this. Cause there's a lot of shitty things that happen. <laughs> um, so I guess the only silver lining could be is whatever information knowledge he gained by being a prisoner for, you know, five years, Hopefully it comes back and helps somebody in the future so that they can either do better than he did or evade capture or, you know, something. Um, that's the only thing that could come out of this that would be a good resolution. Yeah, that's a good good outlook to have on it with everything considered. I, I just assume, and I, I think you've talked about it too, you guys really had to go through a lot because of this guy walking off base and doing something completely irresponsible. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean... The whole military in Afghanistan did during that time period, you know, for a solid month straight, especially for us, you know, used a ton of assets, resources, spent 
a fuck ton of money. I'm sure millions and millions of dollars. I mean, there's still questions about how we got him back and the whole trade. If we even, you know, did we give him more than just five prisoners? Was there money exchanged? I think there's just so many different questions that are still unanswered that, you know, maybe we'll find out 50 years from now. Hopefully so. And and I, I think you're being as objective as you can about the situation because Obviously, none of you guys have a good opinion of yeah. Bergdahl. <laughs> I can't with, blame you for with that. With good reason. Yeah. yeah, none of us blame you for it, man. Um, anyway, thanks for coming on. It, it's been quite a bit, like two years since I saw you in South Dakota. We oh, yeah. had an awesome time seeing Doc and I. Actually, my Doc and hoodie uh, behind me. Oh, uh, yeah. And it, it, I had a South Dakota was awesome, man, for people who've oh, never yeah. been there. And it does suck, though, that venue. I went to Badlands National Park, but the venue Badlands got shut down. Because oh, yeah. where else in the world is there a venue that was? <laughs> this was this was the venue where we saw Dokken. It's a uh, you know concert arena or you know a smaller arena venue. Um, you know there's some seating at the balcony, but I should say like quad, bigger club maybe. Uh, yeah. A radio station, a tattoo shop. They have slot machines and uh, a, a pawn sh- shop. Yes, a pawn shop. And a it sh- had a pistol range, a shooting range, <laughs> and and it was a gun store, right? <laughs> All in one place. Where else are you going to find that? America, baby. <laughs> that place truly is like as America as it gets. Oh, yeah. That's insane. <laughs> so what happened? It just wasn't profitable and they had to shut it down? Uh, the owner who had it, um, he got into some legal problems or whatever, and then he just pretty much cut ties. Oh, that's what happened, too. Um, he owned a bunch of those payday lenders, and South Dakota changed some laws that – made it so it would be a lot harder for him to make money or whatever. So uh, he pretty much pulled out all of his businesses and assets, I think, out of South Dakota for the most part. So he just left. That sucks, man, because it was such a cool place. And uh, Dokken wasn't like the only type of exclusive show that they had there. That was like a place to go to for a lot of events that were like a one-time thing. Like Kiss never does acoustic shows. And I know Kiss did an acoustic show there like, when are you ever going to see Kiss in a venue of like a couple thousand people, however big it holds? You know, oh, yeah. that must have been awesome to see. So it was just when when I heard that Dokken was doing one show in South Dakota, I was like, why South Dakota? But I'm <laughs> going. And then when I went to the venue, I was like, I kind of get it. This is a really cool spot to do something exclusive. Oh, yeah, it was awesome. I, God, I wish it was still around, but I, I'm in Denver now. <laughs> That's so. right. But yeah, no, it was it was an amazing place. A lot of people are really disappointed when it got closed down. Yeah, and, and I know you got to go to Red Rocks in Colorado, oh, yeah. which is another amazing venue. Oh, I love it. Love that place. I saw Deftones and Incubus there. Had a great time. Um, nice. That's like one of the coolest venues in in America, I would say. Oh, it is really. But yeah, man. Well, we have um, Fred Galvin ready to go next. So, is there anything you're plugging or anything like that before we wrap this up? Uh, not really. I mean, I just like to say, you know, the reason why we came out and spoke out about this, because there's a lot of disinformation in the media, especially when he first got back, you know, presenting him at the Rose Garden, you know, not giving the full story. And then we try to give the full story. The government, the media come and do a backlash on us when we're just trying to, you know, say facts, call us liars or whatever. It was never political. It was never uh, to destroy Bergdahl's, trying to get the facts out there and figure out where they lead. It wasn't, well, we want the narrative to be this, so we'll you know, make the facts look like this. No, here are the facts. Which way do they go? All we want is the truth and some fucking closure. Well said, man. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Thank you, guys. Thanks, dude. Talk to you soon, and keep yeah, in touch on, as man. always, man. 
Back on the show, second guest this show is Marine Corps Major Fred Galvin. Always a pleasure having you on. And it's funny because the last time we had you on, uh, you, you said that you wanted to come on for a China discussion. And so many things kind of happened with this show that it, it was something that kind of slipped my mind for a while. And then we started getting emails from listeners that were like, have uh, Major Galvin back on for that China discussion. And I was glad they said it because it was like, all right, this is a good reminder that we got to do it. And uh, we're glad to finally do this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for coming on today, Fred. And, and have, I think from my perspective, this is a really important conversation to have. Um, and I think that the issue of the rise of China is the issue of the 21st century. Um, and I know listeners have probably heard me go on about this subject in the past, but really I'm interested to bring you into that conversation and, and hear what you have to say. Um, I feel that everyone's pretty much familiar with you know your background as a, as a MARSOC uh, raider, as a Marine Corps officer, and your story and the, the, the many things that you went through to clear the names of yourself and your men. Um, could you talk a little bit, though, also about your study of this particular issue and, and how you got involved in it? Yes. So uh, I had a securitist route to, and I'm not a, you know, a Gordon Chang alleged Chinese expert or Michael Pillsbury. I, Gordon Chang, I, uh, by the way, great guy. I've always said I'd love to have him on. See, he really knows his stuff with China. He does. And Jack, what you said just a minute ago about China in the 21st century, we are seeing here in you know the Pacific area of operation what is very scary, what looks like what happened, you know, in the 20th century when Japan was starting to build their powers. And even saw, you know, Smedley Butler, he was, you know, before he died, he was writing in his book, you know, War is a Racket. He was predicting things that, you know, we are going to have problems because what we're, is the U.S. was doing off the Japanese coast was viewed very provocatively. And we were trying to counterbalance what the Japanese were doing. And as we saw later did, across the, uh, not just here in Hawaii, but across the entire Pacific Rim right after the December 7th attacks here. But uh, this same thing you can see right now as we speak, It's I'm not being a harbinger, but this is going on across the Pacific with the Chinese. And, you know, we have a little distraction as everybody's talking about Russia, and that is that is a big threat. But we're seeing this military modernization with China uh, slowly creep, creep, not just with their weapons and espionage, but we're talking, you know, the Spratly and Senkaku Islands where Mm -hmm. they're taking these, you know, contested islands of the Japanese and the Philippines and they're they're using them to project power so that just like here in Hawaii, we were the United States was this was strategic to us because back then coal was needed to project our naval power across the whole Pacific region. But China is slowly doing this and it's not catching headlines because it's, it's just this little drip, drip, drip as they build another, you know, they they just commissioned their second aircraft carrier and uh, they're, uh, they're building their third. And this is just very slow. It doesn't catch a whole lot of headlines on mainstream media, but those who follow China see that this is very, very alarming. And, you know, studying history, uh, I remember this lady, Ann Winslow, she made a comment to the press here in Honolulu that she was saying that this was back in 1911, 
and I'll tell you why it's important. Is she's like, she went down to Fort Kamehameha that guarded the, the entrance of Pearl Harbor. And we knew that uh, there's going to be a surface attack, just like the French knew that the Germans were building back up and there's likely going to be another world war or an incursion, you know, in the Eastern front. Uh, so what this lady in, in Winslow said, she saw these naval guns fire. They thought they were going to come across at sea, possibly do an amphibious assault into Hawaii, which is very vulnerable being so far out in the Pacific. And she said, Japanese can come at any time because I've seen these 14 inch guns fire today. So she made that statement to the press and what happened 30 years later? Well, we, we all know what happened 30 years later in 1941. And the reason I bring that point up, gentlemen, is there's pillboxes all around Hawaii. I mean, the, it was in, we were, we were prepared for an attack. We didn't know it was going to be, you know, an aerial assault, just like the French didn't expect somebody to come over that, uh, that line, but that's exactly what they did. And we had time to prepare for it. We, we knew there was, there was many researchers, analysts, people predicting this, and that's what's going on right now. Everybody realizes that China is, you know, I mean, this, this gal, Zhang, who, you know, got into Mar-a-Lago just over a month ago. I mean, we can go into that, but I mean, they are, and, and I do want to talk a little bit about what's led me here. So, you know, growing up, uh, my mother, she was a travel planner. She, uh, eventually worked for a company that was the largest travel agency group travel agency in the, the United States. And as she was the vice president, we started going all over the world that led to, you know, her taking some of us kids on a lot of these trips. Uh, I went with my mom, on several of these trips to include trips to China and Japan. And it sparked my uh, interest in this whole area. And uh, just stating fact, but that's led to, I've been to 71 of these countries, most of them multiple times, especially in uh, in the Pacific Rim. I've, I've lived in Japan for six and a half years. I've traveled to China and Japan and uh, Korea numerous occasions. I've worked in that area professionally as a Marine for 14 years and uh, doing a countless number of exercises and going in on on ships three years at sea and five of those six deployments were going to different countries in here. And I see this as very strategic as, you know, we, the United States, have a strategy that works well, but is it able to keep pace? I mean, China, with their their financing, and I'd like to get into a little of that mm -hmm. here in a bit as, as far as how they're trying to leverage against us because we are mainly giving financial aid in, in legal ways, and then we're doing military training, not just with conventional, but our special operations forces, and that has worked well. But now we see the Chinese using some, some tactics that are really, really corrupt with uh, leveraging aid in the form of setting up hotels, casinos, bringing in human trafficking that comes in with a importation of drugs. And uh, it really ruins a lot of these economies. But and this is a what's, Go ahead. What's interesting there, Fred, and I, I think what you're alluding to is that there are a lot of things that we might read in the papers that we see as a single action, you know, a single yes. thing happening. But the reality is that behind the scenes that this is all part of a concerted strategy being advanced by the Chinese Communist Party. 
it it completely is and you know it's not just the uh, the strategy that you know like sun tzu he was a genius and he was always talking about you know the best strategy is to defeat your enemy without even drawing the sword and he's always mentioning to not attack the strong point but to uh, to go after the path of least resistance and so china is not uh, doing things where we read about in the mainland that gets everybody's attention because they're, you know, they're, they're not aiming anything right now at New York City or Washington, D.C. directly. But they're, you look at what they're doing in the Senkaku Islands, you know, right off, this is a contested uh, territory northeast of Taiwan, right next to uh, the Japanese Roikyu Islands. And the Japanese actually, you know, purchased these in 2012. But, uh, you know, the Chinese have uh, put an aerial designation zone over those and same thing down uh, off the uh, Palawan and the west side of the Philippines you have the Spratly Islands there and we've had a couple incursions between the USS Preble and the Decatur uh, here even recently in this last month but all the way back to September as well there's some little at sea challenges in China doesn't look at this as a game they they want to build up these you know plateaus and use the the laws and uh and i go back to you know what what's kind of led to my interest and you know when i was pursuing my mba i was at uh, the university and talking to several of the chinese students there and that that was really the first time i saw and started having a lot of interaction with with chinese students in america and this is this is a big issue with their strategy but they they're studying law had a lot of interaction with their their law students and some of their PhD students in business. Very, very interesting that they kind of use the law to say, hey, this is why we have the rights to this. And it's going to cause a lot of problems just like it did last century with the Japanese. Like, uh, just, like Hawaii claiming that we're violating their constitutional freedoms by uh, banning their devices in U.S. government systems. Yes. And they... That is a total ruse that, you know, this is a, a private company. And, but uh, yeah. you're seeing more and more of this. Uh, when I first retired from the Marines and, and started, uh, you know, business school, they, um, it was just flooded with uh, Chinese international students. And although we didn't have any in our executive MBA class, I did have uh, a lot of interaction at the university just asking them questions prior to. So our executive MBA class had a residency in Shanghai and Beijing. And we need to start talking about like, you know, what uh, some of these companies are doing. It's, it starts with this tech transfer and IP theft. And that was the, the topic of our team at the particular team I was with in uh, our MBA residency to China's some of this IP theft. And as you dig into the laws and then you'll go to these markets big signs that say, you know, there's no, no allowance for any kind of intellectual property theft. And you go there and you see any kind of type of electric or garment merchandise, it's all just knockoffs. And the people selling it will tell you like, hey, they're trying to haggle with you. And uh, they, they fully admit, uh, you know, the, the Chinese government bottom line is just allowing that to happen. Uh, you know, the students, when I went to go get my PhD, I was kind of underestimating the Chinese students and literally because mainly I was, you know, short selling them because of their language barriers. 
And immediately after the second week, after we finished our first dose of readings, not a single American was even contributing to discussions. I mean, they are they are very intelligent and shrewd, and uh, they have a singular focus. Just uh, just like Sun Tzu, you know, was talking about massing his forces. I mean, it's it is really amazing to see how focused that government is and traveling to, especially Beijing. And speaking with a lot of their their leaders there, it is amazing that they will take control of a region like we saw just south of Beijing. They'll kick everybody out of there. You probably can't even imagine this in the United States, but like every think of kicking everybody out of Connecticut because they want to build infrastructure so they can provide services. And you know, talking with the development leaders, they're like. These farmers were so unreasonable. We told them we'd give them a condominium and allow them to be retrained and, you know, a, a simple job like a waiter. But, you know, the, the point I make in, in all this is when the Chinese government decides they are, you know, they don't have a balance of powers. It's this is how this will work. And they move forward with it where right now in the United States, we're we're fighting each other, trying to figure out which way to go, border wall, this or that, and we're at each other's necks. And they are developing a military capability that we are going to contend with, and most of us expect the next 15 years. This is going to be something beyond the coin fight we've seen in the last 18 years. And just a, a few data points to add in there is the Chinese see society as something to harmonize, that they want to harmonize the one of society altogether. And there is an ethno-nationalist bent to this for them because they see that harmony uh, as being for the Han Chinese. Um, and there's over a billion of these people. They're not a uh, oppressed minority group, as they sometimes pretend, especially in their yes. relations with the United States. And that's why you see things happening in Xinjiang, where uh, Muslims are being herded into internment camps and things like this. Because from their point of view, there is nothing wrong with harmonizing society into a homogenous one. You know that, uh, and I'm not some Chinese language expert. I don't speak any Mandarin, but, uh, you know, the, the Marine Corps, you know, a century ago was, they had Chinese Marines that occupied garrisons to protect the U S interests, mainly around Shanghai, that port city. And, uh, so they were garrisoned there for years. And one of their leaders who went on to be the commander of the original second Marine Raider battalion was Lieutenant Colonel Evans Carlson. And interesting, you bring up, you know, the the harmony because he adopted a phrase, a Chinese phrase called gung ho. And most people who've heard of that think that that means something with motivation or, Oh yeah. I thought it was Korean. No, it's actually a Mandarin and it means work together. So it has nothing to do with, you know, energy or motivation or some kind of esprit. Well, indirectly, yes, esprit de corps, but it's, so the reason that Evans Carlson was very interested in that, is he's talking to these rebels in uh, China, and he was very interested in how they could, as a smaller force, attack and destroy larger forces. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, they, he understood this concept from the Chinese that we use gung ho. We have to harmonize these smaller elements to go after the big elements. And we have seen that resurgence in China where 
like the very first time I went to China, I remember just like in in Hong Kong before it went from British back to uh, pre-1999, back to the BRC, they would used to have a, different classes of people. And there was, there was this class that would live on these junks out there in, in Hong Kong, uh, the harbor. They were not even allowed on land. And then once, now, after repetitive trips to Hong Kong and to mainland China, you see that's such a, I know all you go into, the, there's no more junks similar to Shanghai. They didn't just clean their, or similar to Singapore, they didn't just clean their act up. But now you see these massive superstructures. When you fly or sail into Hong Kong, every year that I see this, you just see literally more and more miles of sea land containers. It's so impressive. And they get so organized, like you say, whether it's what they have recently done against what they call a minor problem with their Muslims and how they're handling that, or, hey, we're going to clean this area up. We're going to get rid of these junks. We're going to, or we're going to build this city to care for the people. You know, traveling and talking to their leaders in Beijing, they just think that every if if you're a party member, we have to have our government control everything. And when they do, I mean, they make decisions and they're moving forward. And why that's important to us in the United States is, you know, they're they're organizing a military force right now to develop an amphibious capability. Again, trip 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 real slowly, but you see all the stuff in the headlines about Taiwan. And as you start to wonder, now Taiwan, it's a self-governed state, but China wants to uh, control it. And the United States has a treaty to defend it if, if, China, if China has aggression against it. So likely that'll be something you know, we'll see happen, unfortunately, in the future. Fred, one of the things I, I was hoping I could get you to explain to the listeners today was I often hear people say in regards to China and the rise of China and the military threat that it presents, they say, well, look, China doesn't have any troop transport capability. They don't have any heavy lift. Uh, they don't have the same fighter jets or as many as we have. Um, they, they, a lot of people, I feel, don't understand that China's strategy is not to match us tank for tank or fighter jet to fighter jet. Like That is profoundly not their strategy. You're, you're exactly right. They are they are using you know the, their Chinese philosophy in a, in a couple ways, and I don't want to talk right now on you know their their Belt and Road Initiative, how they're doing this economically with alliances. But let's talk military for a second first. Uh, it's just like in Europe. After the First World War, you know, they thought it was going to be, you know, this tank to tank battle until uh, the Germans realized, you know, they can do, uh, they can cross, they can go over these lines and use aviation to. Now the Chinese, you know, 100 years after that, you know, are looking at do we want to build a massive aircraft carrier force? And they're slowly building it. They know it's a capability, but they're really investing in more nuclear submarines. They don't technically per se have a, a triad, but uh, with the air, the, you know, surface and nuclear missile, cap- ballistic missile capability. That's but that's coming, and what we fear is what they are investing in is these uh, long-range bombers, the SIGINT capability. We've seen 
recently they are looking for all this information operations, how to the, how to combine this and work and do operations across a region, much the way that uh, you know we do here in in the United States. But they are slowly building this amphibious capability. We realize in the United States it's a, it's a deficit, uh, and but they're slowly multi-domain looking at the technologies as far as communication jamming and uh you know anti-submarine warfare so they are developing on the high tech but they're they are slowly building this amphibious forces as we've recently seen they really started to get aggressive in building the people's liberation army has a, a branch just like our marine corps and that is growing and just like our national defense strategy that uh was released in 2018 that uh, came out while Secretary Mattis was still there. It talks about, and this is how we kind of tie it back into these other countries, but it talks about these resurgent nations such as China and Russia. And one thing they're doing is to, as far as to fund a lot of their high-tech weapons. You know, the Chinese really, and you look at their students, they're, they're massively getting into the high-tech and putting into mm-hmm. their military modernization and we're seeing what it says in that national defense strategy released last year that to finance this, they're selling them to all kinds of countries. And that's what we've seen happen with, with North Korea. You look at all the kanji that's on those missiles in the North Korean parade. That's not Hangul. That is, that is Chinese. Uh, and it's, it's really, it's, you know, we saw the same thing going on in Turkey with, you know, they want to buy some S-400 AAA mm-hmm. weapons from the Russians. We're starting to box it. You're never going to get our F-35. So Russia comes back and says, hey, we'll sell you our Su-35 flankers. So, But this, just like Mattis had put in that national defense strategy, these countries, Russia and China, they're going to be financing and underwriting these things so that they're selling these high-tech weapons to other countries, which, you know, we saw UAE, they can buy pretty much anything. And they've They've recently been acquiring a lot of these Chinese drones. Why is that important? Well, we have a lot of aid with military training and finance going to a lot of these countries, and, and China is is competing. You know, we have friends like Singapore, and we're like, oh, well, you know, they're buying our fifth-generation fighters. Well, they also did just look at the J-20, you know, the, the Chinese weapons, and they were looking at the Russian before they bought the German Invincible submarine. So, they're choosing their partners wisely, and uh, that's where it all ties into. You know, they're not just looking at confronting us face to face. They're using these legal and international alliances with the, uh, and kind of enslaving a lot of these client state countries. There's been 60 of them that they've been doing this with, and uh, President Xi Jinping is very smart with this silk economic belt that he is developing both maritime and overland to jump on all these resources like we're in Afghanistan slugging it out toe-to-toe with Taliban you know they're in there harvesting all these minerals and resources and that's their goal with this silk economic belt is to get these alliances harvest this especially in routes as their strategy is that the United States cannot impact Uh, but they are they're also even looking at a polar silk route uh, while we're getting a you know, hamstrung in these long, drawn-out, expensive wars. 
Yeah, I. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I actually wrote a, a novel, kind of a military thriller about that, about how this polar uh, Arctic route was opening up and how that changes things from a security standpoint. But um, also with the Belt and Road Initiative, I mean, it, it's very interesting. And you're you're a Marine, of course. You understand that there is this theory, um, or maybe we can call it a fact even, that whoever controls the high seas is going to be able to control the world because they you can control uh, not just from a military perspective, but as far as international shipping and maintaining norms on the high seas as they relate to things like innocent passage. Um, but the Belt and Road Initiative goes around that. And it, it, it uh, subverts our naval power. They, you know, China has got these 50 economic zones with 60 different nations. That's like two-thirds of the world's population. And while we've been focusing, you know, with several administrations over the last nearly two decades on on things that have taken us in a non-strategic direction, they have been capitalizing mm-hmm. on these resources. They've been, you know, that Belt and Road Initiatives you know, to develop their system of pipelines and roads and railways to seize this so that they have power, you know, for the next hundred years. And, and if they close down, you know, putting these little islands out there and having power to control the sea lanes and shut down our lines of communication is, is a serious issue. It's not just in Northeast Asia, but as they're doing, I mean, it's Spratly islands off there and uh, the Philippines, they, and we're trying to do it. We're trying to countermeasure them. So we we put things in different areas in Asia, and we're seeing this incursion across the whole world. It's not just that, you know, they've we, if we move Marines down to Darwin, Australia, and what are the Chinese? They buy the port down there. You know, we even here in this hemisphere, we got to, you know, they bought both sides of the Panama Canal. They're collecting on us right out of, you know, Cuba. Uh, but they're you look at. Belarus, Sri Lanka, Maldives, they, they're going everywhere. When, when I travel, I've seen uh, just massive Chinese construction in the Philippines, Indonesia, Africa. It's, I mean, you see it down in Venezuela. So a lot of this is that you know, $1.3 trillion that China's just been recently pumping to a lot of these countries on these, quote-unquote, no-strings, low-interest loans. Uh, and some countries are smart enough to you know, pull back and say, hey, we're going to, and mainly, you know, our strong allies like India and Japan, like, hey, we don't, we don't want to take this money and become one of your client states. But again, it goes back to, you know, a communist regime where the leadership is so centralized when they make a decision and they're really moving forward with that. And it's a, it's a threat that we are going to, like, like Ann, Ann Winslow thought, oh, you know, we have this, she was focused micro, you know, we have this power to you know, blast these Japanese ships out of the water if they come and attack us in Pearl Harbor. But, you know, we are very vulnerable as we have all these U.S. territories and protectorates, not just a state like the Hawaiian Islands, but we have the Marshall Islands, the Marianas, all the way out to Palau that are just tiny little islands, uh, very vulnerable. The Chinese know that they're building military buildup on these other islands. And meanwhile, they have alliances It'll shut us down and with a lot of trade routes and they're building their military very aggressively right now. So, And you can see how getting us kicked out of Japan, the Philippines, and South Korea would be a huge boon for the Chinese to get us just right out of the Pacific Rim. 
Yes. And, and they're smart about it. They're, you know, them selling all these weapons, them challenging us in the seas. Some of these countries are wondering who to side with. Right. You know, will they side with, you know, the Americans? Because, you know, the Chinese aren't exactly, nor, nor were the Japanese exactly kind when they take control of some things. Uh, and, you know, like we saw in Thailand, you know, they built this massive, uh, huge, they, so they give them these loans, they build all this infrastructure and they get this train that goes down there built with Chinese labor. And, you know, the main, the main beneficiary is not, you know, the country that gets the loan, but it's, it's always China and it's on their terms. And if they can't make payments, then there's terms and conditions with collateral assessed to it. And it, it further ties them to being a client state and it separates, you know, that country from what the United States is doing. And so, you know, we really have, and we've started seeing this with some of the, you know, the building these casinos, bringing in the human trafficking. It's hard when we just do military training and, and put some financial aid out there to compete with things that bring in massive jobs, massive tourism. And, but, uh, that leads to something else that, uh, you know, we started to see a lot here in the United States of the importation of not just narcotics from south of the border, uh, although there's a lot of Chinese fentanyl that is coming south of the border, but it's a it's a massive problem that's affecting the United States with the importation of Chinese fentanyl, which is, you know, had a recent exam and they, you know, that was one of the anesthetic drugs that they used to uh, on myself, but uh, fentanyl that what the Chinese are doing is, uh, I mean, their drugs that they put in here are really not just causing addiction, they're causing deaths. And you've seen that fentanyl death from about 10 years ago. It was at 3,000 overdoses. Now it's 28,000. So we've seen this. Ex- and the, the Chinese know. And the, they've had their opium wars. You go into any yep. Chinese airport, <laughs> drugs will be punished by death. I mean, they are serious. They and know what it does. All the precursor chemicals for the opiates are produced in China and then yes. brought, brought I, I believe that a lot of them are brought into Mexico and then smuggled north. Yes. And they're on a lot of these islands, chains here in the Pacific. And we've seen you know, what it's, I mean, you can, if you travel repetitively, small little islands out here and you see like, wow, this used to be beautiful. They, they used to have a robust economy. You know, you bring in a little casino, human trafficking follows with the drugs. I mean, the Chinese knew this. That's why they outlawed opium and they're very strict. That You know, it is punishable by death. And, you know, the Chinese, they have these, when you're targeted for termination, they do have this little van. You can see it if you travel to China and they euthanize you right there. I mean, it's, so they, they are very centralized control, very severe, just like you see in some Middle Eastern countries with some of their death penalty. But it's, when you control the press, like our grad students, when we went over to China, they were freaking out like, man, we can't get on Facebook. But it's, yeah, they, they control the narrative. So like I'm controlling. So. <laughs> what do you make of claims then that President Xi has overstepped his bounds, that he has lost his patience, that making himself president for life was a strategic miscalculation, um, claims that the Chinese government can no longer produce, you know, 20, 30% GDP growth per year. I mean, do you think that there's any, any truth to this, that, that the, the, their, their reach has gone beyond their grasp at this point? I think that's very, so like when President Trump says we're going to economically 
when we raise the price of soybeans, uh, people in China that depend on that as a staple, and a lot of people think like China is depending on us. Yes. So for certain things. So what that does is, you know, certain people start to starve when we, when we go toe to toe economically with, you know, some of these trade issues. And that is exactly what you're talking about. People are fearing, you know, Xi Jinping and his regime, they, you know, when, when people start to protest, the last thing they want, you know, when we travel as grad students, you go to major cities, you know, it's, people cannot assemble. They don't have freedom of speech there, but they have these underground little internets and people do socialize, but they're, they're very fearful of that, the, the actual individuals, you know, talking about it and, but, the, but they will, but it's not something on a macro level that, but, but that is exactly what the Chinese fear. And they, they will utilize, you know, their law enforcement to go after any, any group, any, especially religious Anything that's organized that can upset that power because they, they try to control the communication, control the population. And uh, you start to see a little of that in the United States with with some of our freedoms of speech. You know, people trying to shut down discourse by insulting mm-hmm. and calling people names. So you have to have like this group thing. But the Chinese, they definitely have that. And they want to maintain that ability to control the narrative not allow everybody to know what's going on, pushing out a, a state-sponsored, you know, narrative. That's Xi Jinping is smart, and when you think, did he overextend himself? Well, I think it, in the future is more people come to the West. They they understand this. It's just like when a lot of people from a, you know, jihad Muslim extremists come to the United States, and they they want to attack. A lot of those have had their minds, you know, wrapped around what freedom is all about. And that's not a bad thing. And that's what I think Xi Jinping realizes is, you know, you can say the narrative, the lie so much, but, uh, you know, having people, you know, this information highway that is out there, uh, you can go into these Western hotels in China and, and get connected to the internet, but it's, a uh, it's for Westerners, but people, people are starting to become, you know, like the T one thousand, they self self aware of uh, you know, so cybernetic system. In my opinion, people will know more and more in China what's going on around the world with immigration repatriation. There's that's a big fear of the government, though. It it seems really that there are competing visions of the future, and you know, America has a, a ways to do to improve. But the Chinese version of the future, what they seem to envision with the social credit schemes and so forth, is just horrifying. It's like something out of a you know an Aldous Huxley novel. Yeah, and you know I see that similar ways here in uh, the United States. You know, you, you protest too much against your boss. You know, you, hey, this is screwed up. I'm going to keep it real, and I'm going to launch a little insurgency at your your work. Well, you know, you could get your pink slip and. And that's yeah. that fear is. I mean, in China, everybody's working. You don't see homeless people there, but you know when almost everything is provided by the state, and that's how a large majority everybody's really thinking that this is how it has to come. Uh, there's people that object, but they don't protest too much. They'll whether it's with their own people or these other countries that they've had these economic zones established. I mean. 
when you inject that kind of money into Central Asia and all the stands and they're bringing all these natural resources through, I mean, that's, that is real, it's life changing for these countries and it starts off very positive and it gets people in a lot of these countries elected and reelected and, um, but it's not always, it's not good for them. Oftentimes in the long term, it's, it's definitely not good for the United States is all these countries are starting to now align with China as they build up their military and, you know, our, our national defense strategy calls it out in that 2018, you know, document that they're a threat. China is a threat. And we realize that our, our national leaders realize that's our number one threat. And, but, but you look at, and what do they talk about in mainstream media? You don't, you don't hear so much about China. (laughs) You hear about the presidential politics is all Mm -hmm. of, of Trump and whoever's going to run against him, the border wall, uh, but China is something that is going to impact, you know, our safety and, and the quality of life that we can do it with what they're doing economically and militarily too. You know, by the, by the way, what you said just a little bit ago about the U.S. <clears throat> kind of having that social credit system on obviously a much you know a minute scale of what's over there, at looking at things objectively, it, it is true. I think we feel like with Twitter and with Facebook. We have more free speech than ever, and it, and it is technically free speech because you're not going to get jailed for things that you say, but as you said, you certainly could lose a job for things that you say. I know people who wrote something that they thought was harmless, and then the next thing they know, they're out of a job, and, and I, I think that that's almost the appeal uh, for a lot of people of Trump, is that he could be critical of the press, he could be critical of the media, he's even been critical of people in his own administration, and as the president... He could do that. He could write whatever he wants. But as a private citizen, you do that, you might find yourself out of a job. So it's uh, it, the social credit thing, I think, is kind of interesting on a global scale. But it's much unlike China, where you're, you're not going to be jailed for it. Well, yeah. And also understand that President Trump wants to start these like food fights with his own administration. He wants to fight the CIA. He wants to fight you know, his Department of Justice. Let me tell you, you don't see that in the People's Republic of China. Sure. It's but, but vertically the, integrated. No. But the, and the point being, though, that he could do that. If you, as a member of the administration, write something critical of another part of the administration, they'd be like, you're out of here. But it's almost like when you're the president or when you have all this money or the you know head of some corporation, you could do things that the average citizen just can't do. And that's, that's true. society it's true. today. Um, yes, it, there is. It is true that there is a such thing as fuck you money, you know, <laughs> yeah. in, in the U.S. It's it's I, oh, yeah. it's it's just a fact. I mean, it, that we do like to always say that that we're a free country or free to say whatever we want. But uh, especially with social media stuff, we've learned that, you know, uh, learned especially. I mean, this this is a whole discussion about free speech we've talked about before. But people find out that someone who's in a job that has nothing to do with anything like this is a member of, let's say, some like white supremacist group, all right? You, you will very yes. likely lose your job for something like that. Now, rightfully, rightfully or wrongfully, we could have that debate, but it's true. The more that you're kind of putting out there, you, you could ha- it, it could have you know, detrimental effects. Well, what, what we're talking about is the dark sides of two opposing systems, com- sure, communism sure. and capitalism, and you're talking about the, the dark sides of capitalism where these big comp- companies and corporations come to have more power than an individual. They, they overshadow your individual civil rights. Yeah, and, and I will say, by the way, it's two very different things, too, because one is a, 
actual free speech issue where in China you will be jailed for saying certain things. <laughs> or as Fred and, says, you will be euth- yes. euthanized by the black van. If uh, Yeah. Yes. The, the other is where if you're voluntarily putting out stu- putting stuff out there, a private or public sector job could say, hey, we don't want an employee um, representing, you know, us in that in that way, and when you're out in public, the the line has basically been blurred between um, when what you're doing as a private citizen and what you're doing representing your company or even your government. You know, it's interesting. You talk about this this control. Um, I was just flying back this last week and from Washington D.C. to through Los Angeles, stopped uh, for the weekend, talking to a friend of mine. He's a movie producer and uh, he's making films. I won't mention a name because this could <laughs> <laughs> demonstrate just what you're saying. But he's like, hey, you know, he's trying to get financing. And guess what? You know, the the Chinese who are financing and the same thing he says, this is very strongly with the Middle Eastern financiers as well. But specifically with Chinese, like they put terms and conditions in that. And, and I'll give an example of this, too. He's like, you have to have some Chinese actors in there. Mm-hmm. China is not allowed to be portrayed anything Chinese. A person or anything related to China cannot be portrayed in any kind of negative skew at all, uh, or they'll lose all funding. So, you know, I've done a little extra work here in the last year, and there's a sign of non-disclosure, so I can't say what film it is, but you're going to see in 2020 this thing that used to have this main... The main role is a classic American film, but the the main actress was a American, and so she'll she'll be Asian, she'll be Chinese uh, when it's released next year. That's all I can say. But that kind of control is 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 actual is real, and you take that at a at a macro level inside a theater, and you know we're like, hey, I thought I thought Kim Jong Un was like warming up to us and everything. Well, he's he's on the payroll too. You know, China is watching, you know, Kim Jong-un, he's watching the United States do this little waltz with Kim Jong-un because that's what they're going to do. They're seeing how we react. Are we, is it just going to be through trade embargoes um, or are we going to use military power? So, you know, is, is Kim Jong-un starts to do another missile launch. Yes, I was going to say we just woke up to that today. That's a North Korea shooting missiles at South Korea. Yeah, and people wonder, like, hey, what's what's going on? Well, the financier who's really the puppeteer pulling the strings is Xi Jinping, and he's using, you know, a surrogate through North Korea. Like I said, all that kanji on those military parades, that that's Chinese that they are supplying the technology, the weapons, and they want a return on their investment. And they're going to control. They're going to, They're using him as a beta test to see where that's going to go right, and what right. they can do. They're studying us. And I'll tell you, you know, studying at the university, the Chinese students are just, they're, they're smarter, harder working, and they look to the future. They, they have no desire to, to solve anything for themselves or the here right now. They, they are thinking a lot longer down the road and they they literally academically left us in the dust just um one thing i'd just like to add real quick fred um i think a lot of people are aware about the some of the stuff in hollywood um some of the stuff with our films uh you'll see almost no critique of china anywhere in our media anywhere in fiction at all as you mentioned 
Um, but there's one thing I'd like to add to that that I think a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of our books, a lot of our English language books are printed in China. And yes. the Chinese will go, there will be like government censors or quasi government censors who will go through English language books and they will tell you that they won't, they won't let you print your book if there's something in there they don't like. Um, and it could be obviously a book that's negative on China. They won't publish or they won't, they won't print it for us. But sometimes it's even like really like obscure stuff. Like I had a friend who wrote a book about, um, he, it's a photo book that involves ISIS and the Kurds and things like that. And the Chinese censors went through that and like were like, nope, not publishing it. I guess because they thought it might promote uh, Islamic, Islamic extremism or something like that. I really don't know. But there was stuff they didn't like in the book, um, photographs they didn't look like. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't print it. It all gets scrubbed. And as the labor, number one thing they were saying about that topic, uh, when we were in China, you know, there's, Constantly saying, you know, there's big companies there, American companies like Apple or their their surrogate and Ford, but um, they have to also go along with the system, which is leads to other things like intellectual property theft, uh, not just with merchandise, but you know these big companies um, are are losing billions of dollars, but they can't even say anything about it. Uh, they they may have some leaked memos here or there, but because they're making so much money in the long term, they know they're, they're losing. There's all these knockoffs. You, you guys have seen them when you travel around, you know, this stuff's knock, especially in Asia, you see all this stuff being sold and uh, people think black markets is something shady and subterranean, but no, it's, it's open on the streets. But you know, these big companies can't say anything because you know, China will shut them down. And now what China is doing is, in our travels there, they everybody's saying you know the Chinese labor is is now overpriced compared to, you know what's going on in Vietnam and in the Philippines and India. So what are the China is really trying to use these, you know, silk routes to tie in these client states, control them, build these rail systems to connect them, get them involved in these loans, and exploit labor, uh, natural resources. You know, they don't have to contend with like our legal system that pays attention to environmental issues. Human just rights. Human rights. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing some shifts from China being everything produced there in their GDP internal to the country. Uh, but that also, like back to what you said before, it destabilizes is, you know, some of these people aren't working some of these jobs go go to see some of these things in your stores where they're made it's it's not always china now but uh that so that's going to change and that's a vulnerability and and the united states is is very you know we've got expert analysts looking at how we're going to you know, try to counter this but uh it, it's just hard sometimes when you have morals and ethics and that's what your your our laws are geared towards uh, to counter what the chinese are doing that's not so in our Western sense, moral and ethically right. And as much as I've uh, riffed on our president and some of the things he does that I don't like, I, one thing I have to say that I am happy about the Trump administration is they've begun to take on just the, the beginning, the very beginning of taking on China, I feel, um, with some of these trade deals. 
Um, I think it was a mistake to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But aside from that, um, I'm happy with some of the things his administration has done, including putting Chinese propaganda outlets in the United States on the on the foreign agents list and making them register. Yes. And, you know, you saw recently, you know, this administration, they, they had the two-by-two ministerial meetings. You had a Secretary Pompeo from the great state of Kansas and, um, you know, acting SecDef Shanahan, you know, they were over there with the Japanese, and the Japanese are fully aware, they're fully aligned with us. Uh, but that is something that you know the Japanese are improving their defenses mm-hmm. very, and they realize like, hey, we can't have Yankee go home so fast because we need to be, <laughs> we have to be aligned with the United States, and it's a uh, so it's starting to, you know, these recent talks last month. It's that has been very strategic and hopefully other countries can see that, okay, a strong country in Asia like Japan, not just economically, but, you know, they're regrowing their military. They are countering a lot of these incursions from the Chinese who are threatened, you know, some of these Asian countries with their Chinese cyber and electronic attacks. Uh, And, you know, we have the big outside partner in the United States aligning with these countries. And hopefully that's what, here in the Indo-PACOM area that there can be more of more alignment with, you know, partnerships as a Japanese or the Chinese have just, you know, they've, they've already gone deep in the pop. Everybody else has gone deep in the pockets of the Chinese. We need to counterbalance that. And, uh, I, and one of the things about our, how different our cultures are from one another between America and, and well, China, but also much of the world, honestly, is, you know, as Americans, we kind of put our past in the past and we just kind of put it there and leave it there. Um, but you go talk to a lot of foreign cultures and they talk about 1918, like it was yesterday. Um, so between Japan and China, all that stuff that went down in Manchuria during the war isn't exactly forgotten. They don't forget about it all. No. Yeah. It's, it's weird because like in America, we can hardly think about what happened prior to the turn of the millennial. Yeah. And uh, you talk to, when I lived in Japan, that's, uh, you you talk to a lot of the Japanese, you know. And I lived in this village, and they talk about, hey, you guys deserved Pearl Harbor. You deserved it. And this isn't some radical thought, but it's what Chesty Puller was writing, not Chesty Puller, but Smedley Butler was writing about in his book, uh, you know, The War's a Racket. He was saying, hey, why do we have our 7th Fleet off the coast probing these Japanese territorial waters? We're provoking it. Chinese see the same thing. Like, why are you out, you know, these are contested waters and, you know, the Spratly Islands, but it's a, you know, they've, they've got like these three little areas, you know, that they're, the Chinese and Americans are doing this dance and that's going to lead to not just confrontation, it's going to lead to a direct conflict. I mean, we almost had a ship, the Decatur run in with a Chinese ship. And one of these days, just like it did a hundred years ago, you know, it's leading to a military buildup and just like Anne Winslow inaccurately predicted that, like, oh, you can come and attack us, and then they just hit us top down instead of, you know, beak to beak. Uh, and I think that's what China is going to do. It's not going to be, you know, just with some, uh, you know, big military bomb. It's going to be a multi-domain fight uh, where, you know, cyber, electronic attack. It's going to hit some vulnerable, and then we have to, you know, that could be 
could start with Taiwan, as we've read a lot about the, you know, Chinese yeah. are wanting to exert their authority over, you know, a traditionally PRC, uh, and they're, they're Chinese, and it's kind of like how they want to reunify the Korean Peninsula. That's how China feels about Taiwan, and you know, we have a treaty to defend them. And I think that's going to be exercised, unfortunately, with losing a lot of American a lot of American blood. Another um, historical example, and this is another maybe more pertinent one to our discussion, is, you know, the Boxer Rebellion and, uh, you know, there were American Marines in China. And this is a conflict we don't know, Americans don't know anything about. They don't care at all about this, but the Chinese write about suffering humiliation at the hands of the West. And this is a conflict we could give a damn about. Nope. Some is that it's not mainstream, and uh, those that don't, and I'm not, you know, some uh, somebody that's you know deep into living in China. I don't have some you know crazy fetish or something, but I mean, if you do, if you travel and do business, you you see this that you know they don't forget. They'll some people talk about it, especially if you can get them in American university. But uh, yeah, I mean, it goes back to what we were mentioning with the. Uh, Ms. Young, like, what was this woman doing with multiple passports, cell phone, and USB drives, and yeah. all this cash in her hotel? I mean, that's that is espionage. I mean, that's mm-hmm. not a lot of public information is out about what's going on. I mean, but you know, she's just happened to make making her way into the president's uh, you know, personal Mar-a-Lago compound. It's uh, with a USB drive with malware. I mean. This is something, and there's there's been little discussion in, in some of the mainstream media about, uh, you know, the massive push to have espionage, you know, in our American universities by the Chinese. I think that's yep. that is something that's not just for tech transfer and IP theft purposes, but that's a. I think that's the wave of the future. Because again, it's a it's a country that's able to mobilize a population of a billion people, and they see ah. everybody of Chinese descent as belonging to China <laughs> in their minds. Yeah. Uh, Very homogeneous culture, and right? Like one mind, har- harmony is their mindset. Yes. So, I mean, I encountered it when I went to Colombia, and uh, I wrote an article about it, and it was it was before, really, I mean, not to, like, pat myself on the back, but I think I was kind of the first person to really write about it um, openly, and um, or at least in, like, a mainstream outlet, and um, I got some pushback for it, you know? It was interesting to see people come out of the woodwork and say, this is racist, you can't say that. <laughs> oh. It's, it's interesting you say that, Jack, because, you know, we, in America, we talk about freedom of speech, but we don't really, you know, you, if you sit there and, like, wave our flags, some people think that's unpatriotic. Some people yeah. oppose the flag, think it's oppressive. I remember working with the Australian commandos, as an example, uh, counter that here in the Pacific. They say they were, we were finishing our training, I said, what if they didn't have this piece of technology and I said, what if you can't link back up with your, you know, HQ? And they said, no worries, mate. You just want to get off the ship. And anyway, we'll be in Australia. You know, they, they have this solidarity. And the Chinese definitely have that. And it'll be interesting to see as a military force how they employ that, if that can be something that they grow. And uh, as, as America and the West, even some of these other countries, they're not as hard 
as they once were. Uh, they do have some very good uh, elite units in the in Northeast Asia and across Asia, but it's a uh, China is is building their force out. And one of the things we did uh, when I was a, still in uniform is work with their uh, the Hong Kong Special Duties Unit. It's like a SWAT team, but it's a military component right there in Hong Kong and. And it's kind of weird because we're tasked to go in there and do this, but you know, there's there's a PLA, you know, headquarters down there in you know Hong Kong, and here we're training their elite units. But uh, I will say this: they were very good. They impressed me to where I would put them on par with any unit that I've ever seen in the United States. They were sharp, fit, and could kit. They, you know, they, their tactics were first class. And sometimes we just underestimate our enemies. And that's, Absolutely. I, I think we've been criticized by the Germans in the past, by so many militaries. That we don't follow a lot of doctrine. We're unpredictable because we're kind of a little bit too fly by the seat of our pants, entrepreneurial. I know as an Army guy, you think like, wow, we have a lot of doctrine. But, you know, we kind of go in and we don't follow a strategy, you know, lock, lockstep. And in many ways, that's good. But uh, I will say this, that, these countries, they're not messing around. Uh, you get a lot of thought put into it with a lot of financing. They're procuring a lot of technology. It's a, I mean, if you look at that, you know, J-20, mm-hmm. kind of looks like the F-22. You start thinking, a little like, bit. where did they get? Yeah, it's, a, it's strange. And, you know, just like we saw 100 years ago, when, or after the war, I should say, uh, you know, a lot of these Japanese cars strangely start to resemble American cars. And like you see when you're driving around in China, you know, we have Ford Motor Company over there. And some of the Chinese cars look strangely like these Fords. They don't look like the Japanese. They look like what America has. over there. You know, this IP theft is real. Uh, they're just taking it and they're going to continue to steal it and develop it. And just like the Japanese were doing after World War II, they're going to perfect it and they're going to you know, take it to the next level. Fred, this is a, uh, a massive conversation as, as you know, I kind of tried to open this, this with is that, you know, this is the question of our century. Um, and I, I really thank you for coming on the show and, um, talking about this today. And I, I feel like this is a beginning of the conversation. This kind of like sets the basis, I think, for the listener to go and do some more research on their own. Um, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to, you know, um, finish with any concluding thoughts or um, anything else you, you, you think is important to mention? Um, yeah, real quick plug, two things. There's, uh, as, as we have been talking, and your listeners really should key in on, you know, there's a, this BRI, this these silk routes that they're, it started off two, twofold, you know, maritime and land, but then they're looking at this polar silk route. That's, that's something that's going to cut us off in that area and you're, you're, Listeners really do need to understand, you know, America and the whole Western way of life is does revolve. If we get drawn into something, whether it's an actor like North Korea provoking us or the Chinese, they don't have the capability right now to do this amphibious assault. But I, I believe Taiwan and our treaty with them to defend them and what the Chinese want to do uh, because of their you know, homogeneous tie to Taiwan. This, this is going to be something that America is going to spend a lot of time, blood, 
and if you look at what we've done in the last 18 years, you know, the struggles we've had fighting guys wearing bed sheets, this is, this is the real deal. China is, that's varsity uh, team here. And you know, we have to, just like if you get hit with an ID, you have to do that self-assessment. Like, hey, am, am, I, am I good? Is my junk still here? Am I more in peace? Uh, we need to do this with China. Is like, hey, let's be honest. We need a, an assessment. Are, are we capable, not of fighting? We can't drain our economy. And that's what the Chinese are really doing by, you know, putting, buying a little asset in Africa, buying this down in Australia. Doing all, They're bleeding us like we bled Russia dry and led to their collapse. Uh, the Chinese, can we sustain this? So we really do, like you said, this is the fight of the century. You know, this is, you know, uh, like a big, massive UFC fight that, you know, we got to get ourselves in shape for. So it's time to hit training camp. In some ways, sounds, uh, I, I hate to make this comparison, but I mean, we have faced some some aspects of this before when the USSR waged the so-called, you know, third world war where they realized they weren't going to take us on directly, but what they could do was flip every country, you know, smaller third world countries, communist, and they'd be able to essentially box us in. Yes. And that's, that's what China is doing. There's just death by a thousand cuts all around the globe. And now we have to think, you know, globally and we are going to be offset. And the scariest thing in my opinion is if they hit so many of these countries that, affect the global GDP of the, you know, here on earth. And they switch from, you know, the U S standard of currency as a base to, you know, the Chinese and we're, you know, going to be second place. It's going to be a big shift in countries. I think will start to around the globe. will start to align and seeing that China is the big dog. Uh, they're the ones that control the fight in the future. And we'll probably go more into totalitarian state and control. Awesome, Fred. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it, and uh, have a great weekend. Packed show today. Uh, still a few things I want to get to, but before we do, be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men and by men of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. We have the Dash One Crate, the Pro Crate, and for those looking for the holy grail of gear subscriptions, our Premium Crate. These are all available at CrateClub.us, and right now we're running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all Soft Rep Radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live. So get on it right now. That's CrateClub.us. Coupon code SOFTREP for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up today. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at thenewsrep.com, you've got to get on board expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here, like 
this guy right next to me, Jack Murphy, and the many guest writers who pop in as well. Unlimited access to News Rep on any device. Unlimited access to the app. Join the War Room community. You'll get invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, for those not in the know, we have our own Soft Rep Radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android. And our homepage is softrepradio.com where you can see our full archive of shows. As always, keep up with us at Soft Rep Radio as well. Uh, with that, wanted to get into a few other quick things. Uh, I know one thing you wanted to mention is an update with uh, General McMaster's. Oh, man, I I was just bringing it up because I saw an article about a a speech McMaster had given, and I was just like, is this dude on drugs? He was talking about how we we have this narrative that the public is war-weary and it's this defeatist uh, mentality uh, regarding the war in Afghanistan. It's like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, so your big plan is to just deploy troops there into infinity? Like, that's not a strategy, bro. Like, I swear to God, I was like, I was like does this, is this guy in a battle haze? Do we need to have him, like, take a knee, face out, and drink water? Like, what is wrong with this dude? I mean, I think the, I think it was a Military Times article. You can go and read it for yourself. I just, like, it, it, it made my head hurt. Gotcha. Like, what is wrong with this dude? So, yeah, so give that a look. Um, I wanted to mention, uh, kind of in some lighter news, that there's a new Ghost Recon game out today. And I remember we had one of the guys from the Ghost Recon game on a, a while back, and... I just figured I'd bring it up because it appeals to this audience. A lot of this audience are gamers, and they love it. Which game is it? It's a new Ghost Recon oh, game. I, I, might, I might have consulted on that game, actually. Really? Yeah, I, I did like some like low-level, I guess you could say, consulting. It wasn't like I was their tech advisor or anything, yeah. but um, they, uh, they talked to me, interviewed me about special operations, asked me some like... Um, that's awesome. I guess like pot type questions, like would this interest you? What do you think of this? And then they showed me some concept art, and I gave them some feedback on that. And what That's I thought great. Of it. Yeah, yeah, because I know people have been a fan of that series in general, and I saw that there's a new game out today. And uh, when we had that guy on, a lot of people are excited about this game. So, uh, like I said, a lot of people in this audience love uh, war video games as much as they get criticized in <laughs> the media and say that you know you're going to become a psychopath. Uh, you know, serial killer if you play war games. Uh, and that's I guess that's really it for now because um, we covered a lot here. Yeah. Next show, however, uh, I know you're going to be in Europe. Yeah, but- I'm going to be gone for a few days. Um, but my uh, my old buddy, uh, Eric Burleson, yeah, is going to be on the podcast. He'll be in studio, retired Green Beret. Um, me, but- and, uh, me and Eric were in the same company in fifth group. Um, and we were never on the same ODA, but we were on the ODB. We were on the B team together for a little while. The only ODB I think of is the member of Wu-Tang. Old Dirty Bastard. Oh, baby, I like it more. Uh, no, the, the B team is like a support element for the company. Um, and I was there the last couple months before I got out of the army doing, uh, uh, I was, I was the AOPS guy, which is, it just means I maintained a series of three ring binders about parachute jumps. It wasn't that exciting, but that's where I know Burleson from. And I'm sorry, I won't be here for that interview. I'm going to try to meet with him the day after. Um, really good guy. I haven't seen him in years. Yeah, I'll I'll meet him. I'll let you know that you're too cool and you're in Europe. No, I mean you got things to do. So um, I look forward to meeting him. But 
Uh, also, uh, I did text her this morning, and the only reason I moved it to Tuesday was because, you know, Matt already confirmed he was coming on. But Vicky Behenna will be on, as I mentioned, to discuss President Trump pardoning Michael. Uh, possibly Vicky with Michael Behenna, but I know Vicky okay. will be on. So, great, you know, it'd great. be great to talk about. I thought it was great news. I'm very excited for Michael. It was a story I followed for a long time. Uh, that's it for, uh, for now. As you guys know, I'm on my last run of shows here. We have someone else coming in to engineer the show on Tuesday, but you know, I'm going to continue here until, uh, my run at the second to last week this month. And how's the, uh, male prostitute thing going? I, you, I am not, you, you put some, you put some ads in back page. Nah, I'm, well, there is no back page anymore, right? It's, it's I, I'm gone. sure they, they've moved to something else though. I, but I did actually want to mention, you know, I brought it up last episode that I am doing a lot of voiceover now. I've always been doing voiceover, but I'm kind of stepping up my game here. Uh, and for those that, that are, you know, are just kind of just getting started on doing ads, I've been doing a lot of stuff where I'm doing all of the imaging. So let's say you want to run like a 15, 30, 60 second radio ad, podcast ad, uh, and you want me to create, you know, get the music on there, get the sound effects, like have it ready to go for radio for a podcast. I will gladly do that for you. Uh, I don't do video editing. However, if you have a video ready to go and you need me to sync up the audio to the video um, in terms of like narrating what's on the actual screen, I did one of those for someone recently. Um, it's a little bit tougher to do to get the audio exactly on point. So it's a little bit more, uh, pricey, but I've been very reasonable with my prices. So if you need a voiceover done, I will gladly do it. And I will give out my email address strictly for that. Don't email me for other stuff. You heard him ladies. His uh, rates are very reasonable, but it's, uh, Ian Scotto radio at gmail.com for serious inquiries, because I know that, you know, people are going to uh, email me about the show. This is my personal email. So if it's about the show, I'm, I'm honestly going to delete it. I'm not uh, answering that type of stuff for that email. That's all softrep.radio at softrep.com. But if you own a business, you want me to do voiceover for you and, and give you a rate uh, with what you're looking at, Ian Scott radio at gmail.com. Uh, that's it for me. Yeah, that's it. Um, Murphy's Law is still out there. Yes, sir. My, my, own, my own book is still out there. Um, Go and pick it up. Pick it up. Buy my book. It's a great book. Uh, well, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Fred. And yeah, uh, that's a hell of a good show. Yep. And a lot of great guests on the horizon, as you see from these books stacked up in front of you. Um, yeah, man. We have some people coming on. I'm, I'm excited. They're going to be really good interviews. Yeah. Um, that guy right there, David Richardson, he'll be in studio uh, next week. He's a former Marine, now working as an artist. That's some of his art on the front cover. Um, and goes into his story, so I'm excited for that one. Very cool. I'm excited for all these shows before I uh, get ready to get out of here. But you know, as I said, there's a new engineer coming in, so I assume you will be continuing. Uh, as we, yeah, it's going to be like a one man band at least for a little while. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, stay subscribed, and and we'll see what uh, we have on the horizon. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.